Challenges to the doctrine of justification. Every generation must rally around the gospel in order to bring gospel clarity, because in every generation, the gospel is under attack. And one way we bring gospel clarity is by maintaining a clear law gospel distinction. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. It's good to have everyone here. We are available anywhere you get your podcast, Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, you name it. We have the whole smorgasbord of podcast platforms that you can find us on. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click that subscribe button underneath this video and the bell for continued notifications so that you get notifications on your phone or your computer whenever we drop new content. The Doctrine of Justification. You know, uh, the, like I mentioned earlier, there is a need for gospel clarity in every single generation. And so what I want to do is I want to look at gospel clarity with regard to the doctrine of justification in this episode. And, and what I intend to do is actually move through kind of the uh, order of salvation, if you will. I, I would like to look at justification first. Uh, but I'd also like to look at sanctification and how the free grace of God is still the driving force and uh, really the epicenter of our sanctification. And to do that, we might bring on some special guests. It'd be nice to to, to maybe bring somebody else on or maybe two, two other guys on and discuss the doctrine of sanctification in relation to the free grace of God and the law-gospel distinction in general. And then I'd actually like to look at uh, our glorification as well, the whole notion of final salvation or final justification that is sometimes uh, discussed in things that, you know, John Piper has written. I know that there is a notion of final justification in, uh, you know, the federal vision and and, and amongst uh, N.T. Wright and his followers and so on. And so I think that'll be an important aspect to address as well. In this episode, we will... Uh, be looking at justification. But before we do that, a word from our sponsor. If you're a parent and you're trying to train your child up in the way he or she should go, you would benefit from a High Contrast Hymn Book. HighContrastHymnBooks.com is where you're going to want to go. This is an example of it here up on the screen. You see how the words correspond to the images and the images correspond to the words. Beloved, this is a great tool for teaching your children not only theology, but doxology as well. Teaching them deep theological truths within a worshipful context during family worship, uh, during family events, and what have you. Use the code word BAPTIST on highcontrasthymnbooks.com for a 10% discount off two or more books. Again, use the code word BAPTIST on highcontrasthymnbooks.com. You guys will not be disappointed with this. If you're training your child up in the way he or she ought to go, they will enjoy this. My wife and I have been using this for our uh, two-year-old daughter. We've used it on a couple of different occasions, and, and she's very much enjoyed it. So at least go check out the website, highcontrasthymnbooks.com. Thank you for listening. All right, welcome back, guys. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification. One of the things I would like to do, and one of the things I always like to, to do to bring clarity to things like terms uh, because we all understand that words can be used differently in different contexts and can be used to to signify or refer to different things or different concepts. And uh, so one of the things I usually like to do is start out by admitting uh, some, you know, measure of equivocation with regard to the term that we're talking about. And 
uh, justification is of no exception. I mean, if you look at the lexicon, there are three basic ways in which the word justification or the word often translated to justification is often used. Uh, either it's used in reference to uh, one being made righteous, intrinsically made righteous. It's being used in reference to uh, a person showing themselves to be righteous through their deeds, uh, a demonstration perhaps of their profession of faith, kind of like we get in James 2. And then it's used in the this third sense and the, and the sense actually that... that uh, really is the subject matter of this episode, and that is the idea of uh, a declarative forensic or judicial righteousness. Uh, and when we talk about the doctrine of justification, we're not talking about the two first senses. We're not talking about us intrinsically being made righteous through the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about uh, our own existential righteousness or anything like that. We're not talking about our vindication before other men that our profession of faith is valid. That's not what we're talking about. That's a kind of justification, but that's not the kind of justification we're talking about when we talk about the doctrine of justification. When we're talking about the doctrine of justification, we're talking about the doctrine that essentially answers the question, how are we made right with God? And we would answer as Christians that we are made right with God in virtue of the work of Christ alone. And more specifically, we're made right with God in virtue of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. In other words, God counts us or accounts the righteousness of Christ to us. And on that basis, we are justified or we are declared forensically. It's courtroom language. We are declared righteous. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the doctrine of justification. Now, why is the law gospel distinction so important in this equation? Uh, well, you may have already been able to see why it's so important when we talk about why we are justified or what is the ground upon which we are justified. The ground upon which we are justified is not our own works. It's not our own ability to obey the law of God. It is not uh, something that is wrought in us, something that we experience uh, subjectively, it's not grounded in any of those things. It is grounded in Christ and in Christ alone. So what we would say to simplify what I've just tried to summarize is that we are not justified through works of the law. We're not justified through our obedience or by virtue of our obedience or response to the law of God. We are justified in virtue of the righteousness of Christ alone. So there's a law-gospel distinction. We are not justified on the basis of our obedience to the law, on the one hand. We are justified on the basis of God's grace freely given to us through Christ, on the other. Let me read what I think is a very helpful uh, summary of the law-gospel distinction. This comes from Anthony Burgess, and this is in his uh, work that's uh, called uh, Vindicii Legis. Uh, a vindication of the moral law and the covenants. But he says this, even though this is not a work specifically about the law-gospel distinction, he, he does helpfully summarize the doctrine here. And he says, the law presents a perfect righteousness and allows for no other, whereas the gospel condescends and offers pardon through Christ. 
This is the primary difference and one in which they can never be reconciled. So it's he's basically saying there, the law and the gospel can never be reconciled when we're looking at it in this light. That the law presents the perfect righteousness and allows no other. There is no bending, there is no swaying, there is no kind of downplaying the rigor of the law, whereas the gospel condescends and offers pardon through Christ. And I always like to summarize that in terms of the law is what is demanded of us, uh, which is perfect righteousness, and we know that as sinners we can't meet that standard. So the law is what's demanded of us. The gospel is what God has done for us, full stop. And so there is an absolute distinction between the law and gospel such that Burgess here says they cannot be reconciled. And then he says, however, some, like the Papists, Arminians, Socinians, and others, attempt to undermine this crucial distinction by advocating justification by works under some guise or another. Yet the Apostle clearly opposes this by stating an immediate contrast, if of faith, then not of works. He's quoting the Apostle Paul. The Apostle does not distinguish between works of nature and works of grace, or perfect and imperfect works of grace. Rather, he speaks absolutely and thus rejects the subtle opinion of considering faith as a work. This truth is the foundation of the Church of God and sets us apart from Jews, Turks, by which he means Muslims, Papists, and many heretics. Okay, so what he's saying there is to, to, to define works into faith or to define faith just as faithfulness uh, makes the instrument of justification our works. It makes it our faithfulness. And what Burgess is saying is, no, no, that's not, that's not correct. That's not accurate at all. The way in which we're justified is by receiving Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Uh, it, it's not by responding to the law in a certain way. It's not in virtue of obedience. Um, sometimes what happens is, you, and this is this is obviously Burgess is writing like this. He's writing like this in the 17th century. He was on the Westminster. Uh, assembly, and he's writing like this because it was a problem then. Again, every generation has its attacks on the gospel. Uh, but there are contemporary examples of where uh, essentially the law-gospel distinction is blurred, or where faith is defined as faithfulness, and, and so imports our kind of response to the law of God into the picture of justification or into the picture of soteriology or our salvation. Uh, one example would be the Joint Federal Vision Statement, which denies a, quote, hermeneutics, unquote, of law and gospel. And it says this, We deny that law and gospel should be considered as hermeneutics or treated as such. We believe that any passage, whether indicative or imperative, can be heard by the faithful as good news, whether law or gospel, it can be heard as good news. And that any passage, whether containing gospel promises or not, will be heard by the rebellious as intolerable demand. The fundamental division is not in the text, the fundamental division between law and gospel, but rather in the human heart. Okay, so basically they're subjectifying a person's relation to law gospel. And we're basically saying, well, there is no real fundamental distinction between law gospel in the Bible. What what determines law or gospel is basically your state of heart. And if your heart has been changed, then you can see even the law in Scripture as gospel. 
All right, so everything can be gospel. If your heart's changed, everything's gospel. If your heart's not changed, everything's law. And and for the joint federal vision statement, that's that's the distinction between law and gospel. We would want to say uh, with Anthony Burgess and and the other Westminster divines, uh, we would want to say that no, the the law and gospel is fundamentally in the text. That's why we make the distinction. The distinction arises from a distinction made in the text. You can think of Romans four five through seven where. Paul says it's 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 not of he who works but who believes right it's he makes he makes that distinction there in Romans 4 he makes the distinction in in Galatians 3 and, and 4 uh you know there's the, the the distinction exists all over scripture and so we would say that the distinction between law and gospel is fundamentally a biblical distinction and the biblical distinction forces us to read the text appropriately uh, we have to read the text in light of the text. And so if the text gives us the distinction between law and gospel, then we have to read the text in light of that. I mean, it's it's an authoritative hermeneutical rule. Uh, so if the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says there's a law-gospel distinction, then we can't just throw that distinction out whenever we're interpreting or exploring other parts of the text. No, that's a that becomes a, a rule of faith at that point that we're going to employ in our reading of the Holy Scriptures. But at least this can help you understand why, for federal visionists, there is a sort of uh, importation of our works into the picture of justification. Uh, you know, federal visionists have no problem saying things like faith just is faithfulness. And so they'll they'll define our works or our response to God into the picture of the instrument of justification. And, and the net effect is that we are justified by works. Or there will be some kind of like final justification where at the very end, there's there's a judgment day that we all have to attend. And, and uh, maybe we were initially justified, but we won't necessarily be finally justified if we if we don't have works, right, to a sufficient degree. Uh, John Piper uh, says something similar to this. He says, In final salvation, at the last judgment, faith is confirmed by the sanctifying fruit it has borne, and we are saved through that fruit and that faith. So notice what he's saying there. He's essentially rejecting sola fide, uh, at least at the end times judgment. And he's saying that really there is no sola fide at the end times judgment. It is faith and fruits, or to put it another way, faith and works that serve as the basis upon which you are judged in the end. That, brothers and sisters, does not sound like good news to me. All right. Um, let's let's hear from another uh, uh, Puritan. We looked at Burgess, who was on the Westminster Assembly. Now let's look at uh, Peter Van Maastricht. Uh, you know, Reformation Heritage Books has been doing us a huge uh, favor by uh, publishing Maastricht's works uh, for the first time in the English, uh, I believe, ever. And so the fourth volume has recently come out, and the fourth volume is it concerns um, redemption through Christ. And one of the things that uh, Maastricht says, he, it's, it's basically a, a repetition of what Burgess says in uh, Vindicii Legis, but um, here in Theoretical Practical Theology, this is the fourth volume in, uh, in the series, uh, Maastricht says this, he says, thus to this extent, with respect to fallen man, they, he means law and gospel, are mutually contrary to one another. They are mutually exclusive, such that he who is under the law cannot be under grace and the gospel and vice versa. 
you're under one or you're under the other. For this reason, the gospel as such does not contain the law. Okay, so uh, unlike the federal visionists, you know, Maastricht doesn't stop and say, well, the law gospel distinction only depends on your state of heart. If you're regenerate, then everything's gospel. If you're not regenerate, then everything is law. No, he says, if you're if you're under the law, you're under the law, you're not under grace. And if you're under grace, then you're not under the law. He does say that. But then he goes on, he says, for this reason, the gospel as such, that is the gospel, the gospel simply considered or the gospel absolutely considered in itself, does not contain the law just as the law as such, the law in and of itself, does not contain the gospel. Although from the fact that faith is demanded by God as a condition of the covenant of grace, it is called the law of faith and it's rendering the work of faith. So there Van Maastricht's dealing with, you know, obedience. What does it mean to obey the gospel? It just means to believe Christ, trust Christ, rest on Christ. Um, and so you can see that even Van Maastricht is making a very careful distinction between law and uh, gospel. We see that distinction throughout the, uh, you know, first and second generation reformers. We see it in the uh, post-re- uh, post-Reformation Reformed Orthodox uh, like Maastricht and uh, Anthony Burgess. Uh, there is some really good material in John Owen. John Owen responds to the Neonomians. He's responding to uh, Richard Baxter uh, primarily, and he's defending the classical law gospel distinction, the uh, Protestant doctrine of justification. Uh, and so that's another helpful um, resource. Uh, one of the other things that I would like to do is... Um, look at something that N.T. Wright has said, uh, and this is from his website, ntwrightpage.com, an article titled, The Shape of Justification. And he says, the one true God will finally judge the whole world. On that day, some will be found guilty and others will be upheld. God's vindication of the latter on the last day is his act of final justification. So you you hear in N.T. Wright some echoes of John Piper. There's some similar language in N.T. Wright and Piper. I think they've both been influenced by Norman Shepard to some extent. And interestingly, N.T. Wright actually cites Romans chapter 2 in defense of that. Now, he doesn't give a robust exegetical defense of why Romans 2.13 applies to what he just said about final justification, but it's the text that he cites. And, you know, if you look at Romans 2.13, it's obviously in the context of unbelievers. Uh, Romans 2 is about the Gentile world who uh, nevertheless has access to the natural law of God and it uh, accuses or excuses them and so on and so forth. We know that conversation from Romans 2. And then, of course, in Romans 3, you have the declaration, uh, you know, that no one seeks after God, uh, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And and that's terrifying. Uh, It's terrifying because we know that if if we are left to ourselves, essentially we are left to try and placate God by our works. That's all that's that's all that's left. And unfortunately, that's not good enough because we're already fallen in Adam. And so the reality that Paul's talking about in Romans two thirteen is that hey, yeah, I mean, if you are if you are left to yourself, uh, your only hope is to try and obey unto you know righteousness and uh, and basically a positive judgment on the side of God that you're righteous. Of course, that's never going to happen, but that's what Paul's getting at. If you're under the covenant of works, you better obey because that's the only way you're going to, that's the only way you're going to be saved. It's kind of like uh, 
I don't want to say sarcasm. I don't want to take it that far, but it, it's because it is reality. Like if you are living under the covenant of works, the reality is you you either obey or you don't. Uh, and if you don't obey, which none of us do uh, to the extent required, then you're not going to make it. You're going to be judged because God's a perfect judge and he's not going to let sin pass on his watch. And so that's why we need to be in the covenant of grace. We need to be in the new covenant that has been purchased by the blood of Christ. We need to receive Jesus Christ and trust him that he has stood in our place. He has taken the wrath of God in our stead. He's, he's you know, lived a perfect life, uh, kept a law that we could never keep to a perfect degree, and, uh, and has thus uh, averted the wrath of God, uh, cause, causes us to avert the wrath of God. He, he takes the wrath of God upon himself in our stead. He imputes to us his righteousness, uh, which is what we need to have a positive standing before God, and, and thus we are free. We are, uh, we are adopted. We are, uh, you know, children of the King, and um, and, and that's all by grace. Uh, there's no room there for your own works to come into the picture to kind of add to that, to super arrogate, to kind of uh, to contribute to 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 that picture. Uh, you're not a co-redeemer with Christ. It's Christ alone. And so, you know, you have the five solas, uh, you know, uh, one of them is Christ alone, one of them is faith alone, um, and grace alone, and, and so on. And, uh, and so it's very important with regard to justification, and as we talk about the law-gospel distinction, is to, as we talk about justification, again, the, as we ask the question, how are we made right before God, we need to answer that we are made right before God through Christ and through Christ alone. And it's, it's, through, it's through Christ's righteousness alone imputed to us. It's, it's not righteousness wrought in us. It's not, it's not anything that God does to us that provides occasion for justification. It comes completely from without, right? The righteousness that we need to be justified comes completely from without. It's not an experiential righteousness that we have. It's, it's, it's not a change in us. It comes completely from without. It's imputed. That's a that's that's legal financial terminology for it's accounted to you by the judge. Like this is righteousness counted to you in virtue of Christ's federal headship, in virtue of his representation of us before God, we are declared righteous. Not for anything in ourselves, but for everything that's in Jesus Christ. And so when asking the question, how are we made right before God? We answer with the clear law gospel distinction, not through our obedience to the law on the one hand, but through the grace of God given freely through Jesus Christ on the other. And that's it. All right. Now, what I want to do in the next episode is I want to talk sanctification because I think what happens is we, we, we say, yeah, for justification, it's, you know, law gospel. It's not obedience to the law you know, that's that's ruled out. It's just the free grace of God through Jesus Christ, the imputation of righteousness and all that good stuff. That's for justification. But when it comes to sanctification, then it's synergistic, right? And it's like semi-Pelagian when it comes to sanctification. But I think what we need to affirm with regard to sanctification is that sanctification itself is a gospel benefit freely given by God. And while it results in in our obedience, a measure thereof, uh, it it itself 
is not given to us in virtue of our, of our obedience. Sanctification is a gospel benefit. It doesn't come because we obey, right? It comes antecedently to our obedience, and, and then it results in our obedience. So even sanctification, you know, when we're talking about uh, the introduction of the uh, of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, or Hebrews 8, as it's re-stipulated there, um, you know, one of the one of the blessings of the gospel is that God unilaterally writes His law on our hearts, and that's part of sanctification because that is an experiential aspect of our salvation, where God actually works in us to change us, right? Um, and and so then He 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 works in us, and we progress in sanctification, but. But that is on account of the gospel. It's not on account of the law. That is to say, the fountainhead of our sanctification is not the law. The fountainhead of our sanctification is justification. It, it's, it's, it's the gospel, right? It's the free grace of God given through Jesus Christ. That's the fountainhead of our sanctification. The law adds shape or direction to our sanctification, right? It guides us. But it itself does not sanctify us, if that makes sense. The law doesn't have power to uh, to propel us through the project of sanctification. That is all of the gospel, all of the gospel. So I, I want to talk about that in more detail. This was more on justification, uh, but uh, of course, hopefully we'll at, at some later date look at sanctification at more depth and glorification as well. And we'll kind of look at final justification where people get that from and and then kind of try and hopefully humbly challenge uh, some of the biblical interpretation that's going on there that's leading people to believe in a final justification. So hopefully this was helpful, guys. Uh, if it was, share it. If it was helpful for you, maybe it'll be helpful for someone else. God bless you all. Hopefully you have a wonderful rest of your day.